0: Alright, if you guys want to make your way back to your seats, we're going to continue on in our worship and the study of the Word. We got a live comment that the audio on the stream wasn't loud enough, so I I think I just fixed it. If it didn't fix it, you're going to have to text Craig because my phone is streaming it, so I'm not going to know for a little while. I also do want to pre-warn you guys that I normally time my sermons with my phone, so... Sorry, I think it's to be too late. I guess just leave and I'll, I'll get the hint. <laughs> oh man, uh, I am so glad to be together with you guys today. Thank you so much uh, for, for choosing to worship. I said this earlier, but man, weeks like this just highlight what a privilege it is that we get together, huh? I mean, I just, um, I don't know. I just woke up this morning really grateful to Jesus for you guys. That that we're family and that we're in this together. And so I'm really excited for our time. Uh, We're going to be in the book of Philemon together today. Uh, If you don't know where that is, congratulations. Basically, no one does. Um, So you're going to have to go to your table of contents in your Bible to find it. It's a little one right near the end, uh, right before Hebrews. Hebrews. One chapter, uh, and this is how we're going to close out our study of Colossians. So we've been in Colossians since... I'm going to have a really hard time just not staring right at that phone call. For all... I had a pastor friend who did the same thing this morning, and he, he, he texted me and he said, literally dozens of people streaming in to watch the service. And I was like, yeah, you probably got to speak, man. <laughs> Anyway, uh, we've been in Colossians since this last fall, and we finished it out last Sunday, and Philemon and Colossians are two letters that actually go together. So we're going to—I uh, I could not think of a better capstone to our time in Colossians than going through Philemon. So it's the really tiny one right at the end of your book, right before the letter to Hebrews, and right after—what is it after? After Titus. I probably should have known that. Um, So, let me me tell you guys kind of where we're going, and we're just going to read this whole book in one go. Uh, But basically, it's this. In Colossians, we talked a lot about the sufficiency of Jesus and the importance of holiness, right? That's basically the whole theme of Colossians, is that Jesus is enough. You don't need anything else if you have Jesus. He is sufficient And because of that, we choose to walk in holiness, walking in personal holiness, walking in communal holiness as a church, walking in holiness with our family and our work relationship, and walking in holiness with those who don't know Jesus. That's that's kind of the whole text of Colossians. Philemon is going to show us that concept very specifically applied to one person's life. And the reason is this. While Colossians was a letter that Paul wrote to a whole church in the city of Colossae, Philemon is a personal letter that Paul wrote to a dude named Philemon who attended the church in Colossae. Uh, And then we're going to look at that story. It's a brilliant story. We tapped on just a little bit of this last week when I introduced you guys to the person Onesimus. Because this entire letter and the story behind it centers around an interpersonal problem between Philemon and Onesimus. And we're going to see, I want you to think about this letter to Philemon in the context of what we've heard Paul saying to the Colossian church. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus changes everything. His work on the cross on your behalf changes everything. Which is why we choose to walk in holiness. It's why we make radical decisions of how we'll engage those in our lives, our family, our friends, our church, the world around us. We live differently. We live holy lives because of Jesus. I want that lens to be kind of in our brains as we read this letter to Philemon. So join with me, starting in the first verse of the only chapter of Philemon. We read this. Paul I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And this is the word of the Lord. When was the last time you guys did a whole book of the Bible in one (laughs) sentence? It's pretty good, huh? You can go home and be like, listen, I endured coronavirus to get to church, and it was worth it. The spirit was there. We went through a whole book of the Bible. And and if they don't check the live stream, they'll never know. So, there's a really interesting story here, and I want us to take the time necessary to just put ourselves in this story. I really think if we do that, what the truth that God has for us today is just going to become evident. It's just, it's just going to be one of those things that as we kind of pick apart a couple of the historical cultural things and a couple textual things, just to, just to get ourselves in the headspace of this story, I think it's gonna be one of those things where you'll agree with me, or where you just go, man, it's just really evident what God has for our church in this. So we'll get there and then we'll end our time with a text from Jeremiah, and I think it'll be I think it'll be good all around. So, there's a couple things we need to understand here, a couple historical pieces before we can dig into the actual story. Remember, this is a letter Paul wrote to a guy named Philemon. It was delivered alongside the letter to the Colossians. We talked about this last week, but Paul wrote the letter to the Colossian church because of its heresy. He sent this guy named Tychicus and this dude named Onesimus to deliver the letter to the church. He sent this letter alongside it. So here's a letter to the church, here's a letter for Philemon. They both get delivered at the same time. And the difference is that this letter is about a personal matter. Now, It's important to note, you guys, if you've spent some time studying Paul, he has zero problem calling out personal matters in public settings. It's kind of his deal, right? In other letters, he would have no problem going, and by the way, tell this guy to get his act together. He does that in books like Romans and books like Philippians. But here, he chooses to separate the issues. Here's a letter for the Colossian church. Here's a letter for Philemon. But don't be deceived. Because Paul understands this as a personal matter. But he does not not necessarily understand this as a private matter. And and the reason is this. The early church didn't operate in an understanding of privacy the way we do. It's just not a category they necessarily had in the same way that we And you notice it, how he phrases this letter. Hey, Philemon, this one's for you. Hey, say hi to your wife, your kid. Also, that church that meets in your house, yeah, this is kind of for them too. And so this letter is given specifically, privately to Philemon, but there's a level of expectation that Philemon's going to hear what Paul says, engage it, and invite his church family into it. Now, we're going to come back to that, but I need need us to start there. This is a personal letter about a personal issue that Paul chose to separate from the larger letter to the Colossians. But he makes sure Philemon knows, I want you to talk to your church about this. I want them to know what's going on. So, two cultural pieces that are going to set the framework for this story— the first one is this. Philemon is one of the patrons of the Colossian church. Now, if you don't know what that term means, that's fine. Uh, a Patron basically means this. The wealthy of a community were culturally expected to care for the public welfare. <laughs> this, is, this is kind of a social system that existed in the Roman, uh, the Roman world in the first century. And it essentially was this. The government wasn't stepping in and helping poor people. The rich people were Uh, And, you know, whatever. This is literally zero social commentary about America right now. This is just me trying to talk to you a little bit about how this worked. The social expectation was that if you were wealthy, you were taking care of your community. You were doing things like taking on slaves and bond servants. Which to us, and we're going to talk about this idea of kind of slavery in that world, it's this immediate like, oh, that makes you the bad guy. But in Roman culture, that was essentially saying you were privately funding welfare. And we'll talk about that, because I'm not making an ethical stance advocating for the Roman system. But we need to understand the Roman system. The closest kind of analog you could get in modern day to talk about this idea of a patron would be like The Godfather. Has anyone seen The Godfather movies? That's a trick question. If you say you haven't, you're not a member of Rectory anymore. See you later. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I think I've got a picture of The Godfather here. Yeah, there we go. The Godfather. If you're streaming, you don't get to see the picture. You have to Google it on your own. Uh, There are benefits to being here in person. You get the you get the screens when they work. Uh, (laughs) um, Think about this, right? If you've seen the movie The Godfather. This guy cares for his community. He gets people jobs. He does favors for people. He looks out for the little guy. He's also like an evil organized crime lord, right? Like, that's, that's not really, like, the, the analogy isn't complete. But you get what I'm saying. A patron is a wealthy person in a particular community who uses at least a chunk of their wealth to kind of look out and care for the social structure of their general community. They make sure the craftsmen have good jobs and fair wages. They make sure that the public streets and buildings are kept up. They make sure that there aren't an overwhelmingly large number of people starving to death on the streets. Right? So Philemon is a patron in Colossae. And one of the ways he's living out his patronage is that he's hosting one of the Christian house churches in his home. Now we know that the early church was kind of organized geographically by city, and in each city was kind of seen as an individual uh, local congregation, but in a city like Colossae, right, like the letter of Colossians was written to, Col- to the church in Colossae, there were probably five, six, seven house congregations that met in different people's houses basically every day of the week. There's a pretty continual pattern of meeting and sharing life and sharing meals. So Philemon is one of is the host of one of these house churches. And we already heard a little bit about him, right? We get introduced to Philemon, we get introduced to his wife and his adult son, who the, the structure of the language here is, is kind of assuming that this adult son lives at home with him, which wouldn't have been abnormal in that day. Archippus, if you guys remember, is the guy at the end of Colossians that Paul kind of rips him, and he's like, hey, tell Archippus to be obedient to the ministry God gave him, kind of challenging him to, to step up into whatever that thing is we don't know, that, that the church has identified as a calling or ministry, right? So this dude and his family are leaders in this church. And the letter, I don't know if you noticed this, centers around Paul sending this man Onesimus away from Rome, back to Colossae to be with Philemon. He says that at the end of Colossians, and he spends most of the letter here in Philemon talking about this. I'm sending Onesimus back to you. And you can tell from kind of the wording of the letter, there's beef, Right? There's tension, there's broken relationship. Well, it's pretty intense. What we know, and by the way, if you go and you study this on their own, there, there are some different theories about this, and so I'm kind, of, I'm kind of bringing together kind of essentially the common consensus of biblical scholarship on the story here, because there are some people who would s- tell this story a little different than I am, but I think this is the best consensus of what we know of the data with, from the biblical sources and what we know from the early church. But Onesimus was a slave of Philemon. And we talked about this, right? At the end, in chapter 3 and 4 of Colossians, Paul gives some really explicit instructions for slaves and slaveholders in the church. And we talked about that. That's really weird, right? How, how we uh, can, can talk about a holy scripture where someone is giving commandments to Christians Who own slaves, and the command is not, hey, you can't own people, so set them free, (coughs) right? And we honestly, if I'm just being blunt, like, we don't have the time to dig into all the nuance of this. And so if this is something that messes with you or you're curious about, please seek me out. I'd love to sit and chat with you about some of this. But essentially it comes down to this. Slavery in the Roman world is different than slavery, American slavery, in our history. It's just different. It's not better. Don't don't hear me saying that. It's it's abominable. And, And we can say with absolute certainty from the overwhelming teaching of Scripture that God hates slavery. One of the overarching themes of the entire Bible is that God is for the marginalized and oppressed, and he frees the slaves. The identifying narrative of the Old Testament is the Exodus narrative, which is God intervening to free brutally mistreated slaves. The overarching theme of the New Testament is that Jesus inserted himself into history to free enslaved and dead souls from the effects of the curse. God hates slavery. But the gospel is always contextualized to the culture it exists within. And in the Roman context, there was a deep, deep slave society. In the city of Colossae, probably a third to more of the people living in the city were some form of slave. Rather than outright rejecting and commanding Christians to reject the system, they instead set up a positive ethic that undermined the very foundations of the system. Now you can argue that it might have been more effective to do it a different way, but that's what the early church did. It's what it is. The Christian ethic as set up in the Roman world undermined the entire function, the entire institution of slavery. Paul does this in Colossians before he gives commands to slaveholders about how they need to remember that they have a master. And however they choose to treat human beings under their authority, they need to remember that ultimately they are under the authority of God, right? But all throughout the New Testament... You hear that there is this idea of the image of God and that all human beings are equal in value in dignity in birth, and worth, equal in their need before God and equal in their need of Jesus, and they're all brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church, in the kingdom. There's no such thing, Paul says, as Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. In Christ, there is one. So the positive ethic of Christianity, even in the first century, was to undercut the very foundations that defined how slavery worked. But it was still a reality. They still existed in the Roman world that had tons and tons and tons of slaves. And so you've got this man, Philemon, who's a patron of the church, who was socially expected to take on bond servants. That was how, by the way, you applied for welfare. If you were out of money and your family was starving, you sold yourself away as a bondservant to make sure that your family had food to eat. And it was something where when the just system worked correctly, you could work for a season and gain wages and buy your freedom back and rebuild your life. Again, not anything I'm arguing for the morals of, but it is the structure that exists here. So Philemon has a slave named Onesimus. And it's honestly very likely that Onesimus was actually born into some kind of slavery. Uh, his name is a slave name. Um, it's one that would have been very unlikely for a free, someone born free to be given that name. But we don't know. We don't know. He could have just been from a very low class family or something of that nature. But what we do know is this at some point, he runs away from Philemon. And he doesn't just run away, he robs Philemon and then runs away. And this is a big deal. He steals from his master, and he gets the heck out of Dodge. Now, really quick, it's important to note that as modern Americans, we are predisposed to root for the runaway slave, right? That's It doesn't matter if there was a, 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 a legal way for this person to pursue freedom. Human freedom is the thing. He should have been pursuing it. Go him. And I'm not even going to tell you that's wrong, but just... Remember that you have that predisposition as you read this text. Philemon runs away and robs his master and somehow makes his way from Colossae to Rome, which is about a thousand-mile journey. It's a big deal. It makes sense, though. If you are a runaway slave in the Roman world and you have a little bit of cash, a city like Rome is one of the best places to get lost and buy an identity and start over. So he makes his way there. But God, in his amazing sovereignty, out of all the people on earth and all the places on earth, somehow causes Onesimus to cross paths with Paul and Apathos. Unknown to this guy that the pastor of the Colossian church has left his city and made the same thousand-mile journey and made his way to Rome and is meeting with the Apostle Paul, somehow God, in his sovereign sense of humor, causes these guys to cross paths. Which is just amazing. And in that context of meeting with Epaphras and meeting with Paul, Onesimus receives Christ and becomes a Christian. Now that's insane. That's insane. You're talking about a dude who ran away from slavery and his master was a church leader. And he runs away and he hears the gospel preached and says, that's what I want for myself. And he becomes a believer. And this is where our book really picks up. Onesimus, now, spending time with Paul, being discipled, being cared for, being challenged, being raised up in the faith, makes the decision, along with Paul, along with everyone there, hey, you need to go back to Philemon. You need to go back. Paul sends the letter to Colossae, sends the letter to Philemon, and sends Onesimus. You need to go back. And, and really quick, Onesimus does. Can we, can we just sit in that for a moment? Paul didn't narc him. There, there's no police involved in this. Which, by the way, I feel like we could have a whole separate sermon on the fact that Paul and Epaphras, as two leaders in the early church, came into contact with a known fugitive, and rather than turning him in, they shared the gospel with him. Uh, but that's maybe, maybe that's a sermon for a different day. But... Here's the thing, no one gets involved. There's no police involved, no Roman guards, no slave hunters. Paul shares the gospel with Onesimus. He becomes a Christian he says, all right, man, all right, it's time for you to learn in in your actual life, where the rubber meets the road, what real Christian community and forgiveness actually looks like. You're going to go home and you're going to talk to Philemon. And don't worry, I'm sending Tychicus with you. I'm sending a letter and my authority and my words with you. But you need to go home and you need to meet with your brother in Christ, your equal in Christ, your co-heir with Christ. And you need to work through the injustices that you've done to each other. misamis does. He says, yeah, let's do it. He doesn't run off. He doesn't flip in the bird and say, forget you, I'm in Rome. I have a complete and total out from actually dealing with this. This issue is not included in the letter to the church. It's a private letter that Philemon and Philemon alone would have seen first. And he could have read it and thrown it in the fire and said, yeah, he just wants me to set up a guest room for him. And he could have dealt with the issue however he saw fit. But he didn't. He didn't. We actually have really good evidence that he forgave Onesimus and that he gave Onesimus his freedom and that they actually functioned as brothers in the church. You know, the the first bishop over the church in Ephesus, a sister church to the Colossian church, after the death of the apostles was a freed slave named Onesimus. Come on. We have really good evidence that Philemon heard this challenge, heard this rebuke, received it, invited his church into it, and restored his brother. Now there's power in that. And We don't know what the heck they did. We don't know how they settled the financial difference because remember, Philemon didn't just rob this guy, he also owed him money because he was a bond servant. Because this this man was supporting whatever family whatever family on this man has had during the term of his service, right? We don't know how they settled accounts, but we know they figured it out. And on the other end, they were able to be brothers. They were able to walk in unity. Now, guys, that's stinking intense. There's power in that. This slave runs away from his injustice, runs away from some of the sins done to him. And as we all do, responds to sin done on him by sinning himself, compounding sin upon sin. And when he's confronted with the power of the gospel, chooses to believe in the reality of radical forgiveness and kingdom community. That the power of the gospel can actually overcome compounded sin and systematic social injustice. And can actually create real freedom and real unity. He chooses to trust in that. And he gets on the boat and he goes back to Colossae. Whew. We can remember this brother when we are dealing with our interpersonal issues when we have conflict and unresolved hurt and an unforgiving heart and roots of bitterness in our own lives towards brothers and sisters and family and people. I'm just going to say it real quick. The chances are very slim that our situation is somehow worse than on and Philemon's. By the way, the social pressure on Philemon to destroy this man would have been insane. Insane. Slaves in Onesimus' position were dealt with brutally. Because if it was known that you could run away and get away with it, it would break the whole system. If this dude was caught, the standard punishment for running away was to either have your fingers cut off at the knuckle or have all the knuckles broken on both hands and have your ankles crushed so that you couldn't run anymore. The standard punishment in the Roman world for robbing your master was to have the Greek word for thief carved into your forehead so that people might know what you had done. That's what Onesimus is risking coming home. And the pressure on Philemon to carry that out and work would have been immense. I know that sounds like insane for us to hear this, but you have to remember, dude's not the only patron floating around Colossae. There's a lot of other wealthy, powerful, rich people who have tons of bondservants and are doing their civic duty to hold up society, and if they hear about this dude who's already a weird Christian, and now he's not, even, he's not even punching his slave, and everyone knows about it, and that's going to spread around, what the heck are you doing? The pressure on him would have been immense. And so Paul was very careful. I can command you to do this, my lady. You know I could. I'm an apostle. Your church exists because God spoke through me at Ephesus and brought Epaphras to your city. You received salvation because of my ministry. I can tell you to do this. But I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I want you to do this of your own accord. Because of your love for your brother and your understanding of the kingdom. I want you to do this because you want to. Because you realize how much this matters. Because you realize that this is your cross to bear. That you get to absorb the pressure, the wrong, the, the, the social like decrying against you, the loss in standing, the loss in business partnerships. You get to endure that suffering for the sake of Onesimus because he is your brother in Christ. Come on, dude. I'm not going to command you to do it. And no one's going to know you got this letter unless you tell people. But you know what you should do. And he leaves it at that. Holy cow. I mean, there there is just an intensity in that. And here's what I love. This church, these guys, this family, they figure it out. And we have no idea how We have no idea what the meeting looked like. We have no idea what they did, what the financial arrangement was, what the legal arrangement was. We have no idea how they dealt with the social pressure or the potential persecution. We don't know any of that. All we know is that as a church, they came together and they figured it out. And God honored that. Come on. God chose to honor that. I love this. I love this. Beloved, it just comes down to this. Everything we read in Colossians, everything we read about the fact that Jesus is sufficient and he actually changes the world. He actually changes how we live. He actually changes the day-to-day social and business and personal and relational decisions we make. Everything we read about that in Colossians is actually true. Jesus actually is sufficient. And the gospel actually does change human hearts. From rebellious, runaway, thieving slaves to rich and powerful benefactors. We don't know how corrupt or not corrupt he was, right? We can maybe just assume. We like to assume the rich guys are the bad guy, right? It doesn't matter. Jesus Christ changes human hearts. He changes real, feet-on-the-ground actions and decisions. And a guy like Onesimus and a guy like Philemon and a church like Colossae actually come together around something really painful and really scary and really disunifying, and they figure it out. For the glory of God, for the sake of the kingdom, come on. Beloved, this is church life. This is what we're called into. This is why the church that meets in their house is included in the letter. Because personal matters in the context of the kingdom of God cease to be private matters. Because we're actually invited to mingle our lives together. Because in the context of community, of real human beings, flawed and broken and sinful and doing their best to glorify God and live into Him, we meet with Jesus and we hear from the Spirit and we make wise and prudent decisions that glorify God and advance His kingdom. Because we're better together. Beloved, this is why you've been called into a family. Jeff used to love to say we, as a family of God, we get in each other's kitchen. And you will be hard-pressed to find a book of the Bible with more getting in each other's kitchen than finally To have some random pastor from another city a thousand miles away write you a letter and tell you how you should deal with your personal, interpersonal, relational business problem because of Jesus, (laughs) that's pretty intense. And to have it hand-delivered by a guy who's been hanging out with your pastor for the last three months? Hey, your pastor says hi, read this letter. That's that's in each other's kitchen. That's in each other's lives, in each other's junk. And yet, look what God does with that. We humbly, kindly, lovingly give ourselves over to real Jesus community. People's lives actually change. And the kingdom of God actually advances. And and Jesus is seen and glorified and known to more and more people. I want to give you one thought, and this is kind of how we're going to wrap this up. Philemon's response to Onesimus is so Jesus-y. It's so Jesus-y. The way he brings that guy back into his home, absorbing whatever kind of like injustice or persecution or whatever he experiences from that, brings that dude back into his home. Remember, this idea of the Roman bond servant is a, a little different in how we understand this stuff. You're talking about a family member, someone who lives in your house, whose kids play with your kids, who sits at your dinner table, brings this dude back into his home. And he says, hey, look, man, It's paid. Right, Paul comes at him. Whatever he owes you, dude, just charge that to me. Charge that to my account. I feel like most of us could probably go home and just meditate on that line. But Philemon brings this guy back into his home and restores him and gives him real forgiveness and real dignity and a real invitation and a real place and a real table with a real family. That kind of forgiveness. And we don't know how tempted Philemon was, right, to keep an eye on the purse or the jewelry box, right, when Onesimus is around. But we know they figured it out. We know that he did his best to offer real, radical forgiveness and restoration. And that is a Jesus-y way to love people. That's how Jesus loves us. We are the runaway. We are the thief. We are the one who consistently chooses to wrong our creator and run from him and take what belongs and refuse submission and refuse restoration but the love that Jesus gives, the radical, insane, humanizing, dignifying, inviting, bringing back, raising up kind of love. Come on. That's what Jesus offered you and me. He took our sins and he threw them away. It says, it says he, in the Old Testament of the prophets they said God takes your sin and he throws it into the ocean. lets it sink like a stone. I want to end our time by reading this text from the prophet Jeremiah. And I think this will be a good space for us to kind of transition and spend some time just in prayer and and thought and reflection. This is a prophecy in Jeremiah concerning the ministry of Jesus and, and the life of the church, the age of the church. It says this. The days are coming, declares the Lord,
1: when I will make a new
0: covenant with all the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Now this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors, say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all already know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. And hear this, Red Tree Church. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. If you desire To live in the kind of Jesus-y, kingdom-minded, in each other's kitchen community that the New Testament describes, that Colossians and Philemon exemplify for us. You must hear this. We love like we have been loved. With the radical, forgiving, dignifying, pick-back-up, invite-back-to-the-table kind of love that Jesus gave to you. We make a willful choice To remember sins no more. To restore those. By our culture's standard, unworthy of restoration. To give radical love when it invites suffering on us. To push against cultural pressures and love and restore anyway. Because that's what Jesus did for us. I am going to give some space, the band's going to come back up, and we're going to do our response time a little differently today. I'm going to give some space and just ask you guys to, to find a way, find a way to be with you and Jesus for a few minutes. And I would just ask you to bring a prayer to Jesus this morning that, that, that works somewhere around this theme. I'd ask you to reflect with Jesus on the kind of love he has given you. I love this phrase, I'll remember their sins no more. Because it creates this interesting dynamic where we come to Jesus in our prayers with our shame and our hurt and our sorrow because of our sins. And you have to imagine some kind of scenario where the sovereign God of the universe looks at you and goes, What are you talking about? I don't remember that. You go, no, but but when I did, I, I just, I don't know, I don't remember that. I don't know, maybe you did that. This is the way Jesus interacts with us. I'd encourage you to have a prayer with Jesus where you talk with him honestly for a few moments about that kind of radical love that he gives you. And I'd encourage you to ask him, to give you sober eyes to see the way you love those around you. To think of those in your immediate grasp. Family, friends, small group members, neighbors, coworkers. Just ask him to give you eyes for how you love Ask him to give you clarity. Man, maybe just ask him supernaturally love through you. Ask him to work his grace and his patience and his long suffering through you to the people around you. Because I don't know about you, church, but if I'm willing to have that conversation honestly with Jesus, what strikes me is just how short my love falls of Jesus' suffering. take a few minutes to be with Jesus. Yeah. Then I'll come back and pray for us and we'll continue our time.